You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning, good morning. We doing well? Good to hear it. You look good. Let's get going. Grab a Bible and flip open to Genesis chapter 3. We are walking through an eight-week theological discourse on God's design for human bodies, for genders, for marriage, and sexuality. Uh, We spent the first four weeks coming out of Genesis 1 and 2 and really focused on the ideals of how God designed those things to work. Throughout those four weeks, we kept kind of mentioning, foreshadowing that we know we don't live in a world full of those ideals, that all of these things have been distorted, twisted, and even weaponized at times in devastating ways. Today, we will start to look at a bit of why, which leads us to Genesis 3. But as we go there, let me just remind you of the last image that we had, the last verse of chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so this is more than just a factual description of Adam and Eve in the garden at this moment. Naked and unashamed. Naked and not ashamed is a summary of how right it is, how tranquil, how at home they are with God and with themselves and with each other. They're comfortable, they're confident, they're full of joy. It, it's, it's like the Hebrew word shalom, peace, all is right. And remember originally in the text, there were no chapter numbers or verse numbers, so that image of chapter 225 flows directly into chapter 3, which is where we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So those last two verses in seven and eight, that's an inversion. That's the antithesis of chapter 225. You see that? Chapter 225, they're naked and not ashamed, and they go from that in eight verses to naked but hiding in shame. Ashamed to stand naked before God, ashamed to stand naked in front of each other, ashamed with themselves. What happened? Let's go back and break that down, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So something intentional is happening here in the original language. Chapter 3 starts with a shift. Now the serpent. 
now a new character with bad intentions. We know for at least two reasons. See, first off, in the ancient Near East and in the Bible, the serpent was generally associated with chaos and death, sometimes depicted as a sea monster or a dragon, a chaos dragon, if you are looking for a good band name, okay? So immediately, some red flags would be going up for the original audience. What is this dragon doing in the perfect, peaceful, shalom-filled garden? Secondly, interesting note, the word used to describe the serpent as crafty is the Hebrew word arumim. It's the same root word used to describe Adam and Eve's nakedness, arum. Back-to-back verses, that's not an accident. See, in chapter two, the man and the woman are naked, they're bare, they're exposed, but in a good way. They're naked and not ashamed. In chapter three, the serpent comes to expose them in a bad way. He comes to lay them bare to shame and chaos and death. We'll see more as we keep going. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, I think it's worth noting here, we mentioned this back in week two, Genesis depicts a particular relationship between words and reality. So in chapter one, God uses language to create ex nihilo, out of nothing. In chapter two, the man uses language to name what God created. In other words, God's words create reality humanity's words describe reality that God has made. Okay, what does the serpent do with his words? He questions reality. Did God, did God actually say that? Did he really? It gets worse, verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die just a bit outside. I mean, that is really close to what God said. She quotes his command perfectly, but for one little addition, neither shall you touch it. He didn't say that. And I don't have time. I could do a whole sermon on how dangerous it is to add add to God's word, even little things, especially little rules. And I'm sure you don't know any particularly religious people who enjoy doing that, but it's terrible. Keep going. Verse four, But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent escalates from questioning reality to now he's outright denying it. That's not true. God can't be trusted. Which in light of the situation they're in, the perfect, naked, and not ashamed shalom garden, that's a brazen attack for him to bring, yeah? You can't trust that guy, the guy who made you, who set you up with this glorious life. You can't trust him. Ignore all of that. Trust, actually, you should trust me. He's holding out on you. He's holding out the good stuff for himself. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In response to the serpent's temptation, Eve sees that the fruit is desirable and eats. We always like to point out Adam is standing right there. He is complicit with her. This is not just Eve's fall. They're together. He does nothing. He says nothing. He protects nothing. And they fall together. 
They join God's enemy, this chaos agent in his proud rebellion, and with that, tragedy. Human history from this point forward will be marked by breakdown. No more naked and unashamed. No more shalom. Now there's hiding. The serpent's twisting and distorting and rejection of truth will touch all of creation. War and disease, violence and abuse, insecurity and shame spiraling and selfishness and bullying and every mental disorder and all of crime and everything you hate in this life comes downstream from this moment. And one aspect of our broken world that the text brings up is humanity's relationship with our own desires. Something with our desire mechanism is off. That's what we'll focus on today. I want to point out four insights from Scripture regarding the complicated relationship that we have as embodied beings with our own desires. The first insight comes from right here in Genesis chapter 3. Insight number one, human beings are capable of being deceived. That's insight number one. Human beings are capable of being deceived. On surface, that sounds like a very straightforward, simple statement, but I want you to pause and think about that. In Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve had the capacity to be deceived. They knew the truth, and yet someone was able to convince them of something entirely false. Some have actually argued that this is humanity's fatal flaw that we are capable of being firmly convinced that we are 100% right when we are, in fact, 100% wrong. No spouses should be elbowing their spouse right now. That's not what we're doing. I mean, that's terrifying to really consider. Fake news and propaganda are not modern inventions. They are ancient. And they persist because they work. People would not waste their time trying to deceive if people were not susceptible to being deceived. And the truth is, I don't think I even really have to argue for this one that hard uh, for at least two reasons. The first one is um, history. (laughs) All of it. Like, I think if you study history hard enough, you could find one or two examples where human beings have been deceived to believe some really bad ideas. But bad ideas that were destructive to people and others and our relationships. And then more personally, I think if you're honest with yourself, you could think back in your own life and remember times when you've been deceived. When you really, like not just in surface level, easy ways, not just you got pranked, but like you really thought something was for your good and it turned out it was not. Insight number two. It is possible for humans to desire things that are not in line with God's design. Insight number two, since the fall, part of having a sin nature, part of sin touching everything in the world, it is possible that you and I can have real sincere desires in us that are not in line with God's good design. So the rest of the scriptures, the Bible describes both Good desires for good things aligned with God's design and also desires for unholy things that reject God's design. I'll give you a quick for for instance. Uh, In the New Testament, the Greek word for desire is the word epithumia, epithumia. Uh, So in Luke 22, 15, 
Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, and he says, Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's epithumia. Jesus says, I have earnestly epithumiaed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's not how you conjugate Greek words. It's a joke. Okay, here we go. Um, That's a good desire. That's beautiful. That's healthy. That's love-infused, godly, righteous desire. But a few books later in Romans 6, 12, we find this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Same exact Greek word, epithumia. But now it's describing sin-ruled desires, sin-affected desires. The Bible has a category for both. Good desires for your good in line with God's design, not good desires, not rejecting God's design, questioning reality as God defines it. And and I'll just say this. I don't think you actually need to be a Christian or believe the Bible at all to know that this is true. We all know this at some level. We have a category that there are different kinds of desires, some good, some not so good. Uh, Here's an easy example. Uh, Kid food choices are just an easy way to see this. And every time I say kids in this section, I'm using a code to secretly refer to myself, okay? Kids love Cap'n Crunch Berries. Kids love, they desire little Debbie cakes and Mountain Dew and Cheerwine with no end. That is their picture of heaven. The loving parent does not look at that child and say, well, since you want it, It must be good for you. That's not what we do. We know better. The loving parent says you need healthy, nutritious, balanced food. Now now hear me here. I'm not questioning the realness or the sincerity of the child's desire for high fructose corn syrup. I'm saying that very real, sincere desire will eventually give that child very real, sincere diabetes. Insight number three. It is possible for humans to desire good things in an excessive and sinful way. Now it starts to get a little more complicated. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. We preach on this somewhat regularly. I'll give you one verse where it kind of sums it up. This is coming out of the first commandment. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. But then there's this amazing insight in Ezekiel 14.3 where God tells Ezekiel, men have taken their idols into their hearts. Idolatry is not just something you do out here, crafting wood or metal. It's something we do in here. Taking anything in the world, a good thing, a bad thing, a neutral thing, and elevating it to the role that only God is supposed to have in your life, that only God can handle in your life. Worshiping something, giving something, your time and your money and too large of a portion of your heart. That's what idolatry is. And and seeing sin through the lens of idolatry offers some rich insight. Here's what I mean. You have seen this happen, whether you had this category before or not. This is the, the classic example, all right? A young teenage man desires a girlfriend. Unless you're a dad of daughters, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad desire. He gets a girlfriend and then does a magic trick where poof, he disappears. And his friends and his family, they no longer see him. And if you're older than 35 and you remember back in the day when we had to pay for individual cell phone minutes and text messages, that young man rings up a cell phone bill of $738 in one month. Real life story, not me, good friend of mine. (laughs) The boy is now grounded. 
the girl breaks up with the boy. Heartbreak and depression reign. The desire itself wasn't bad, but he wanted a good thing in a distorted and sinful way that caused breakdowns in other areas of his life. We can do this with so many good things. You can take food and the good desire for food, and if you approach it as a God in your life, it will ruin you. We, we can, you, want a, you want a happy, joy-filled family? Delightful. That's a good desire. Let it consume you to the point that you constantly stress yourself and your children out in the impossible quest for a perfect family? Good desire gone bad, it'll lead to breakdown. You want a successful career? That's a great desire. Want it so much that you're willing to lie, cheat, and step on others to get there? Get there? It's a good desire that's become idolatrous. You want to be kind and compassionate. How could that be bad? It's so good unless you want it so much that you become a people pleaser with no courage, no ability to speak hard truth, no ability to say no, and therefore you have no margin or peace in your own life, a good desire elevated that leads to breakdown. Flip it. You want to be truthful and honest. That's a wonderful desire unless... It rises to the level in your life that with no awareness and no care for others, you're harming people with reckless abandon. That's a good desire that's gone bad. Insight number four. It is possible for human beings to desire good things and never get them. It is possible for human beings to desire good things and never get them. We live in a world broken by sin, so it's possible that you will have things you long for, dreams you pray for, appetites for good things that never come to be in your life. It's a category that we call unmet desires. Uh, biblically, we see lots of examples of that. Some that have just always stood out to me are, are uh, married couples who wait long, hard decades of disappointment into old age before they receive the child that they had prayed for fervently. Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, Elizabeth and Zechariah in Luke. And painful decades of waiting. Listen to how Proverbs 13, 12 describes this. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. All right, is it talking about bad, unhealthy, sinful desires there? No. It's talking about healthy, beautiful, godly desires. Fulfilled? Tree of life. It blooms. It brings fruit. Hope deferred? Unfulfilled? It, it, it wears on you. It breaks our hearts. And I just need you to know, it is possible that you could do everything right and earnestly seek something beautiful and good and never receive it, never receive it. Now you can be closer or further from the life you want to be sure, but on this side of eternity, there will be unmet desires. There will be some difference between the life you have and the life you want. There will be a gap there, okay? So as we're going through those insights, I hope that in your mind and in your heart, you're starting to feel some amount of, this is complicated, that the embodied human interaction with our own desires is a complicated relationship. There's, there's layers to it. There's levels to it. And depending on what kind of desire you're dealing with is going to depend on how you have to respond to it. We're capable of being deceived. We're capable of wanting things that are not good for us. We're capable of wanting good things, but in an out-of-proportion, idolatrous way. We're capable of wanting good things, but not getting them. We're capable of wanting things outside of God's design. And we haven't even mentioned that you can have conflicting desires. Where you want multiple mutual, things that are mutually exclusive. 
We haven't even mentioned the fact that during the seasons of your life, guess what? Your desires will change. It's complicated. And if our interaction with our own desires is that complex, do you see why wading through the variety of embodied desires is gonna require some discernment and some nuance and wisdom? Do you see why conversations with your friends about their desires could go wrong in a lot of different ways? And it's gonna require some wisdom on your part to know how to wade through and navigate that. We'll talk more about that in two weeks. I'll say this as well, in light of the reality of all that complexity, I think our culture's doctrines about desire are reductionist, flawed, and honestly border on silly. They're just, I mean, you gotta, you gotta see it. I'll, I'll give you a few examples. So our culture says, listen to your heart and follow your desires. Listen to your heart and follow your desires. There's a couple problems with that one. The first one's a major one. That doesn't pass the Hitler test. What I mean by that is if Adolf Hitler can say yes and amen to a philosophy, there's a good chance that's a philosophy you don't want to adopt for your life. I'll give you a second one that we've already hit on. That doesn't account for the fact that we can be deceived. Like we saw in Genesis 3, like you've seen in your own life, like human history is full of examples. There's no consideration for the reality that you could be 100% convinced you're right, but 100% dead wrong at the same time. Last problem. That is the same philosophy espoused by three-year-olds. And I don't just mean that as a low blow. I mean, toddlers, by and large, do whatever they want. And adults are supposed to be the people who are mature enough to consider our desires open-handedly in a thoughtful way and pursue the ones that are good for us while progressively learning to control and walk in freedom from our unhealthy and ungodly desires. That's part of what maturity is. That's part of what it means to be an adult. I'll give you another example. Our culture doctrinally says anyone who questions, disagrees with, or stands in the way of you chasing your desires is hateful, phobic, and or oppressive. You have heard this in our culture. Let's be honest. That is one possibility. Our world is full of tons of hateful people. I would argue it's an effect and proof of the fall of sin. And when I see people go, hey, there's actually no such thing as sin, I'm like, you don't believe that because you hate this. But also, as an assumption and an overall philosophy, that's really reductionist. Here's part of how I know. Do you know how many times in my life I've needed a close friend or a loved one to sit me down, look me in the eyes and say, hey, John, that ain't it. That thing you're chasing is not good for you. You don't need to chase that. Like I said, we'll talk about that more in two weeks. Here's how the Bible captures this reality in a really beautiful way. Proverbs 27, verse 16 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Someone who honestly loves you and wants your good and lighten with reality, you would rather be wounded by that person than receive kisses from an enemy. What's that? Also known as deceptive pandering affirmation from someone who doesn't love you enough to tell you the truth if it'll hurt. All right, last one, maybe the most important one. 
Our culture says you are your desires. You are your desires. Our culture says your desires are a source of identity, a way to define your personhood. Okay, here's a question. Um, which, Which ones? All of them? Or here's another question. In which time frame? How long does a desire have to be in me before I know it's one of the ones that defines my identity? That rhymes, so you know it's true. Put a different way. If you are your desires, then your identity is going to be on really shaky footing. What happens when your desires change? New identity? What happens when your desires are in conflict? Conflicted identity? Or what if, worst of all, maybe you get all of your desires and you find out they don't satisfy the way you thought they would? Identity crisis. Not a joke. Because our culture sees our desires as a source of identity, we instinctively elevate desire to an almost godlike status. In our cultural moment, it feels like blasphemy to not follow your desires. To use Romans 6:12 language, we think the purpose of our bodies is simply to obey its desires. So instead of realizing that God is right and we can take even good desires and make them idolatrous, We've actually codified this idea into our cultural sensibilities. Of course you're supposed to chase your desires. And we just assume people know that we mean the good ones for you. Or we go to crazy lengths to justify people causing harm to themselves and other people. Yeah, but they're chasing their desires and I don't have any footing to tell them not to. Talk about that more in two weeks. Okay. And I'd like to acknowledge here, I'd like to say the quiet part out loud. While our, our, our culture at some level exalts all desires to some extent, we do this exponentially when it comes to sexuality and romantic desire, do we not? Those tend to be where people most want to find and build their identity, and when questioned, those tend to be the ones that people get the most tense or angry or offensive, offended about. Personally, I think that's worthy of reflection and consideration as to why. But that's not what we're talking about right now. All right, so what do we do with our desires? It's complicated. I think our culture's view of desires are are pretty silly, reductionist, and flawed. How do you actually walk as an embodied human being made in God's image with mind, body, soul, strength, all interwoven, and the complexity of your own desires. I'll give you three steps. It's not this simple, but I'm just trying to help, okay? Step number one, analyze your desires. You've got to analyze your desires. You have got to realize there are different categories for this stuff, and you've got to know what category an individual desire is in before you're ever going to know how to move forward with any clarity, is this a good desire that, is, that brings flourishing, that brings health for me and for the people God's put around me, good for my soul? Or is this an unhealthy desire that's in rejection of God's good design? I, I want to be really honest. This isn't easy. It, it takes some ability to be really honest with yourself 
with God and with others, it is easy to assume that your desires are all really smart and wise and in your best self-interest. The problem is they aren't all that way. And you've gotta be able to figure out which ones are and which ones aren't. You are capable of being deceived. So you better not run through your life chasing after every craving. You will constantly be at risk of destroying yourself and the people around you. Don't take the toddler philosophy through life. I'll add one more thing here. You are going to need to invite in some people to help you see things that you don't see well. One of the effects of sin is that it gives us blind spots. And the trouble with blind spots is you can't see them. But surround yourself with with good, godly people who love you and are wired different from you, and it can help. They can help you see what you don't see naturally, hypothetically, like when I was at a volleyball game yesterday and I desired to rip a ref's head physically off of his body with my helpful and analytical words, and my loving wife said, that's enough. It did pivot the outcome of the game. But that's not what we're talking about. That's not, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. All right, here we go. Step two, that's pride. That's, I confess. All right, safe place to be honest. Step two, you got to resist and submit your ungodly desires. You got to resist and submit your ungodly desires. So as you analyze, if you find within yourself a desire that is outside of God's design, you've got to have a category for, yeah, of course. I'm open-handed with my desires. They don't define me. And when I find desires within me that are not in line with God's good design, I resist them and I submit them. I just want to speak. I already think I hit this, but culturally speaking, that's a lie. You are not your desires. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. Would you write that down? I am not my desires. And now I want to say something more to you. Because you're more than that. You're more than your desires. They're a part of you. They don't define you. You're a psychosomatic being made in the image of a good God with a brain and a soul and you're interwoven and you're complicated and you're more than your desires. Your identity comes from him and unrighteous shortcuts will never get you to your desired outcome, even if it feels like they are for a while. I don't care how much you think they will, they won't. Uh, uh, Now let me shift. At some level, I'm not particularly talking to non-Christians in the room at this moment. If you're here with us and you don't believe in God, you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. You're welcome as a safe place to ask questions and to wrestle with things and get to know us. We love you. We're glad you're here. I'm not expecting you. If you don't believe in God, if you don't trust God's incredible love for you, most specifically displayed in the cross of his son, Jesus, where he paid for your sins to be met, to forgive you and to reconcile you back to a relationship with him where you trust him and worship him. If that's not your starting place, why would I expect you to submit your desires to a God you don't believe in or don't know? I would encourage you that throughout my life, I've become very convinced that God is very smart. And I don't think you should reject his design without some consideration. I think that's a reasonable request. I would encourage you to analyze your desires and see if you're ever deceived and see if they ever lead you to a place you didn't think they would lead you to. But I'm not really talking to you right now, okay? I'm, I'm speaking to the Christians in the room where I, said, where I say we are the ones who are convinced that God's real, 
that he loves us, that the cross defines our identity and our relationship with him, not our performance. And if you're a Christian, you're going to have to have a category for submitting and resisting your desires. We're the ones who know that something's broken in our desire mechanism. So we we consider it thoughtfully. So here's what I want to do. I want to think back through this series week by week, and I want to consider, in light of what we've talked about already, some ungodly desires outside of God's design that we might need to submit and reject. Week one, your body is a good gift interwoven into how God designed you. So any desire that leads to hate or harming your body is going to need to be resisted and submitted. Amen? This includes, I'm not going to start where you think I'm going to start. This includes the desire to scroll through social media, comparing your body to filtered images of digitally enhanced models or friends, which fuels jealousy, insecurity, and self-hatred. We're going to need to resist and submit that desire. It's killing your mental health, and every bit of research says it is. And we just, we just keep death scrolling. It's called death scrolling, people. This would include viewing your body as a purely pleasure-seeking device regardless of the harm it causes to your body or your soul or the other people in your life. This would include all versions of hookup culture. We'll get back to that one later. This would include abusing substances, drugs, alcohol, or food, which we try to talk about a good bit because I've heard so many people say, hey, why are Christian pastors so often gluttonous and no one calls them out for that? It's a reasonable question, one that I fight and have to take to the Lord and submit to him and resist. And I don't always win that fight, but I have a category for where it goes. This would include any and all eating disorders, whether in the direction of overeating or undereating, binging, purging, whatever it might be. This would include overt self-harm to your body to deal with emotional pain, all ungodly desires that we submit and we resist. Week two, week two, we said that God made male and female as radiant counterparts to respect, honor, and depend on each other. So any desire that rejects God's design or discriminates against or harms the other sex or hates or seeks to destroy your own sex must be resisted and submitted. And that would cover everything from what you might consider to be harmless jokes about the other sex, all the way up to actually accepting a belief that says all women are blank, all men are blank, fill in the blank. Idiots, crazy emotional, lazy, not to be trusted, and I'm not rejecting that significant pain in your life may have led you to that conclusion, but that conclusion needs to be open-handed, submitted, and resisted. And that goes all the way up to how do we handle it if we find in ourselves a desire to be a different gender. And if you've been patiently waiting, if you've sent in questions about any and all transgender issues, it looks like that is probably going to be the focus of our Q&A in week eight. So I don't have time right now to unpack all of that. We will. It's coming in a few weeks, three weeks out, okay? Week three and four. God designed marriage to be a covenant love across difference with life-giving potential. And he designed sex to be the physical expression of that covenant love. So any desire that rejects or destroys marriage or sex as the expression of that covenant must be submitted. This would include 
the desire to pursue any sex outside of covenant marriage. Does that mean desire for sex before you're married? Yes. What kinds? All. Desire to have sex with someone you are not married to? Yes. The desire to look at pornography and or have sex with yourself through masturbation? Yes. Resisted, submitted. Not to make God love me, but because I know he already does. And there's freedom. I'm not my desires. I'm more than that. Walking in a new confident relationship with him. This would include any desire to manipulate or coerce sexual contact that someone does not want, whether married to you or not. Within marriage, this would include any desire to punish or withhold sex from your spouse. You don't turn sex into a weapon, it's a good gift. This includes the desire for divorce outside of extreme categories and exceptions. Divorce tears apart what God put together as a billboard of Jesus's love for the church. And Jesus never quits on his covenant. So as believers, we fight for oneness and health in our marriage, even when it is difficult. We submit and resist our desires. And this includes the desire to have sex or marry someone of the same sex as you. We will likely revisit this topic in a little more depth in two weeks, but I do want to mention here, just so you know, this is not an out there disembodied issue for me. These are close friends and loved ones that I walk through life with, actively, not in past tense, actively walk through life with, that I love. And if you would consider yourself homosexual, bisexual, asexual, any minority sexual identity. I just want to tell you, I love you and God loves you and I'm happy you're here. And you don't have to believe that. And you can consider me phobic and hateful and oppressive. I'm just telling you from what I know of myself, that's not my goal. It's not God's goal. He loves you. He wants good for you. Uh, let me make sure one other thing is clear before we move on. I am also in this list not in any way trying to say that resisting or submitting to any and all of these desires are equal in difficulty or cost. They aren't. What I would argue is no matter the cost to you, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. And there's thousands of other ungodly desires that we submit as well that just aren't as much the focus for our series right here. Okay, that leaves our good desires. What about our good desires? Step three, pursue your godly desires. If you desire a good godly thing in line with God's design, in an open-handed way, prioritizing prayer, do whatever you can to get it. Do whatever you can to get the life you have as close to the life you want as possible. Righteously. Righteously. Do whatever you can, righteously. So, so if you would like a higher income, okay, do everything you can, prioritizing prayer to make the life you have be as close as possible to the life you want, righteously. Go back to school, start a side business, hustle, study, pray and get involved. God might change your heart, Certainly, we pray for our contentment, no matter what our life looks like. And he might change your circumstances. 
or he might do both. But we move forward open-handedly prioritizing prayer, pursuing good godly desires. Some of you, I'll do one more. Some of you greatly desire to be married. Is marriage an acceptable, good thing to want? Of course. So do everything you can, prioritizing prayer to get the life you have as close as possible to the life that you want, righteously. So pray and ask God to help you be content with where you are and ask him to bring someone in your life or both. Check your heart for idolatrous, too great of desire, then pursue it and do everything you can to put yourself in environments where potential spouses are present. So if everyone you see every day at work and in your neighborhood are all already married and or retirement age, it's pretty slim odds that you're gonna meet someone. It's a little bit like going fishing, but instead of putting a hook in the water, you're just hoping the fish will jump in the boat. You're gonna go prayerfully fishing. I just want to, I want to say this. The Christian life is not a miserable life of waking up every day and saying, God, how do you want me to reject all my good desires today? No. The Christian life is a passionate, joy-filled life of knowing and loving God, finding our deepest desires met in him, and then from that place of rock-solid identity and contentment, walking in open-handed freedom knowing and loving our neighbors, giving our lives away, walking by his spirit as he grows our desires over time. Here's where we'll land this morning. Jesus was the most joy-filled, confident human who ever lived. He walked in a perfect relationship with his complicated desires as an embodied human. He's totally free. He controlled his desires. He was not controlled by them. And he laid down his desires to love you to set you free and to reconcile you back into a right relationship with your desires. A complicated relationship, yes, but a healthier, growingly more and more mature relationship. Jesus died on the cross to bring us back to God and in part to restore us back to the original ideal designs of the garden the naked and not ashamed of Genesis 2.25. I want you to consider that. Jesus was stripped naked and covered in our sin and our shame so that we could be brought back into God's good design for us, where we stand naked and unashamed with God, not on our own morality, but based on Jesus's perfect life in our place. Where we stand naked and unashamed with each other, not literally, but metaphorically, spiritually. Sin is being removed from our relationships as we let them to live as family, where we stand naked and unashamed with ourselves, with good categories for how do I consider my desires and how do I respond to the wide myriad of different options I have. Jesus frees us from chasing our own desires so that we're free to love and serve those around us, whether by helping them pursue their good desires or by supporting them as they mourn their unmet desires or by speaking gracious and firm truth when they desire things that are not aligned with God's design. But we'll talk more about that in two weeks. Jesus brings us back into shalom. And and I'd like one parting thought. It turns out our desires are a much worse God than Jesus's. They're constantly shifting and changing. 
they are often deceptive. They are a mixture of good and bad and holy and sometimes wholly destructive. Ultimately, they wouldn't and couldn't die for you. They cannot make you whole. At best, they bring us temporary fulfillment. And Jesus wants so much more for you than that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you.